Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you were with us last week, we talked about what the silence looks like or looked like back then and even the silent moments of our life. And is silence meaning God's absent or God is not speaking or is it truly us that weren't listening? We find in the story of these three wise men that somebody was listening. They were watching. You ever ask yourself, who are these wise men, these kings, these magi? They're, they're only referenced in, in one book of the gospel. Very little is said about who they are, simply that they came from the, the east. And out of the silence, here come these kings. We sing about them at Christmas time with that song, We Three Kings, We Three Kings of Orient are. All right, you know it. And you're like, oh, no, okay. We place them in the nativity. When you pull your nativity set out of the box, you place all the figures, and where does everybody go? We know the angel goes on top, Jesus in the middle, and it's kind of everybody else kind of scattered. You got the, the camels and the sheep and the donkeys, and I don't think there are any cats. Um, but we always put the shepherds, and then we add the wise men. How, how many were there? What does Scripture say? Scripture doesn't say how many there are. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm about to mess with your nativity scene in your head, so just prepare yourselves. The Bible actually doesn't tell us that there were three wise men. It actually just says there came men from the east. It doesn't say three. We assume three because there were three gifts. But the Bible doesn't actually speak to how many there were that actually came to Jesus. But we give them crowns when, in fact, they weren't kings at all. They were men probably of great stature and position, but they themselves were not kings. In fact, they probably served in the court of a king, and that the king of Persia and the Medo-Persian Empire. We give them, in some traditions, they give them names and personalities and beards, so they must have been manly men. And we know about their three gifts but there was more than three of them. We're not actually told how many. And I often wonder if only one gospel has this story and many of the things in our traditions are, aren't even accurate. Was this story simply inserted into the gospel for flavor? As sort of an enchanted part of the Christmas tradition, it, it is inserted. Sometimes... Even with conversations after uh, first service, having shared this message, uh, I heard some comments about, wow, I, I didn't know that. I just, we sang this song about this and I just assumed. It's important that we know the story of Christmas. Do your children know the true story of Christmas? That's why that, that book is such an important thing for you as a family to go through is to, to train up your children in the, the true meaning of Christmas. If you uh, email me at nextsteps at c2church.com, there's a great uh, children's resource on there that's called uh, Why Do We Celebrate Christmas by Phil Vischer, the, the incredible creator of a little thing called Tales. 
right? Okay, so he's got this whole new thing. If you uh, log into your Right Now account, which if you don't have one, you can email us at nextsteps at c2church.com. There's a great kids' resource that a fam- at a fa- as a family you can sit down and watch uh, in a very entertaining way the true story of Christmas. My wife actually found one on YouVersion. Uh, our service this morning is on YouVersion.com. But there is a, what do they call it, a plan? Is that what it is? You go under plans and you look up. I better make sure I get the title right. We watched it this morning, and it was called "Why Do We Celebrate?" or "Why Do We Call It Christmas?" And so, for about three minutes this morning, we sat down and watched a little video of "Why We Call It Christmas," and then read through a little devotional. I think it's important, even as an individual, a single, a young married couple, whatever stage of life you're at, that you remind yourself of the true meaning of Christmas, and especially as parents begin to train our children. So, there's there's a few resources for you. But let's continue to mess with your nativity scene in your head. These were not three kings who showed up with crowns on their heads on camels on the night Jesus was born, right? We picture them there with the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and all these animals, and yet they don't arrive that very night, at least not from what we can gather from Scripture. And it's important to understand who these men are that search out the Christ. Who are these wondrous seekers? Let's call them for what they are. They're pagan astrologers. They're pagan astrologers. They don't believe in Christ. They only know of Jewish history and prophets from probably from writings that they have obtained as as wise men. They'd have access to all sorts of recorded documents. The few that were there were probably cataloged and libraried for their use. And they were wise men that sat in the court of the king and offered him advice, and they would be readers of the signs of the stars. Whether it would be daily or monthly, they would provide wisdom to the king so he could make decisions. This is how he went about as a pagan king, someone who did not believe in the one true God. This is how he would make his decisions. They did not open up the daily tribune and read their horoscope. That was, they read the signs, they read the stars, right? They did not seek the one true God. Their guidance came from something else. So here are these men, these pagan astrologers, that God would reveal himself to. Isn't that odd? As I've studied this over the last few weeks, I've just kept coming back to this odd thought that God would reveal himself to these astrologers. These were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They were not of the chosen people. I think perhaps this really is the first miracle and ministry of Jesus. That pagan astrologers would become his followers and be the first Gentiles to find him. I think that might be the very first miracle Jesus performed. They are studiers of celestial writings. The stars and their movements... And they investigate a marvelous and apparently very unique revelation revealed to them in the heavens. It suggested that there were actually many astronomical events that had occurred uh, somewhere between 12 and 3 BC. And any one of them could have been... uh, could have been interpreted as the sign, the star of Bethlehem, if you will. But I find it interesting that there are some who believe that it was actually the alignment of three events that could have led the wise men. I I really think in the end, I think it's 
it's pretty awesome either way that it happened or any way that it happened. But it's suggested that these three, the combination of these three unusual and significant signs caused these seekers, these magi, wise men, to set off on their quest. Between 7 B.C. and 5 B.C., we see a, a revelation in the heavens called a triple conjunction. Not even sure what that is. But Saturn and Jupiter, which had significant meaning for kings and for, and for predictions, come in alignment in the zodiac sign at that point. Each, each sign of the zodiac was assigned to a country, and I don't know, may want to take a stab in the dark at where this sign actually appeared in the heavens. Wouldn't you know, it was in the one known for the house of Hebrews, the Israelites. And Saturn and Jupiter were predicting predicting a king to be born to the nation of Israel. And along with that, in 6 BC, massing of three planets, Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars, together, to them, to these astrologers, meant it wasn't just a king, it would be a mighty king. And finally, in 5 BC, a very unique and great comet appears in the sky, according to the records. And this, their final sign, perhaps the one thing that finally led them to Jesus, this comet appears. And its meaning, this is no king. This is no ordinary king. This is no run-of-the-mill king. This wouldn't just be a mighty king, but this would be a very great and powerful king to be born in Israel. These men studied the ancient art of astrology. They knew what these things meant. And I'm sure, as I mentioned before, they had access to writings of all sorts. Now think of where Persia is, Persia in modern-day Iraq, Iran, former state of the Babylonian Empire, where a young man named Daniel was also referred to with the title wise man. He reported to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And as a wise man, Daniel was asked to interpret dreams and signs and give report and advice to a king so he could make decisions, but he did not read the heavens He prayed three times a day. It's along these same lines that we can refer to that wise man, but it is these wise men that have access, perhaps, to the writings of Daniel and his prophetic writings of a Messiah, a king that would come born of Jewish heritage, the Savior of the people of Israel. They would have had access to these writings Perhaps they even had access to the Old Testament writings, which they probably indeed had, where Isaiah in chapter 9 says this about a great light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. So let's dive into what the New Testament writers say about this event 
in Matthew chapter 2, if you have your scripture, or on version, we have the notes on there as well. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is what the gospel writer Matthew records. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. The devious plan. He was lying. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's even there that the prophecies of the Old Testament reveal that there would be a great ruler to come out of Israel. These wise men, these pagan astrologers set out on a great quest. This morning we want to look at their quest, their question, and their discovery. We know that their quest was intentional. From the distance they were, they didn't just stumble into Jerusalem. They didn't just pack it up and say, hey, let's make a weekend trip over to Jerusalem. What do you say? This would be an intentional trip. This was something that they would prepare for. They knew that Jesus had been born. Of his name they did not know, but they knew that he had been born. This was not of any question. And perhaps as they see the signs revealed in the stars to them, perhaps the first one comes and they say, wow, there's going to be a king born in Israel. And perhaps by the second sign, they say, we better get moving. This this is going to be a big deal. And they set their course towards Jerusalem. Although they were headed westward, the the word that we put in in for the east is actually they saw or interpreted the sign from the east, where they're located. And we're not told that it actually appears to them the whole time. They don't actually follow the star. I know, I'm blowing up your nativity story here. It could have been, and it probably was, that this sign appeared for a little while, but they see it, they interpret it, and they move accordingly. They set their sights on Jerusalem. I mean, where else do you go for a king born to Israel but the capital, Jerusalem? And they're not dissuaded or discouraged. In fact, we know that their quest not only was intentional, but that it was probably intense. 
Traveling through the Middle East was not going to be a pleasure cruise. But no challenge would dissuade them, even knowing that a neurotic king, Herod, was awaiting them. They went on their quest. Now, the quest undertaken by these men required of them a steadfastness of heart and mind because they couldn't just go on a whim. It was surely a conviction of something that had been real, revealed to them in the heavens. That, and this sign was not only unique, but supernatural to them. There was some special meaning. They say when they arrive, we have come to worship. There was an intent and an intensity of their travels. They were there to worship. I think sometimes we think of these wise men as as people who just threw some stuff in their car and took off. But if there are more than three, and some some traditions believe there's 12 to 18 of these wise men, these astrologers, along with all of those who would serve them and probably protect them. So there was a caravan, not Dodge, just a large gathering of, you know, they're traveling. And I hate to break it to you, but they probably weren't on camels. They were probably on white Persian horses. How cool is that? Right? I mean, they went from driving a beat-up Chevy to driving a Ford Mustang. Okay. It's a personal wish. But their quest was intentional. If you've ever had to pack for a trip, you know, single guys, you have a backpack, you throw two things in, you're good to go. Ladies, you go on a trip, two suitcases, one for shoes, one for clothes, and you're good to go. Now, for those of you who have children, no, it's not that simple because packing for children now requires about a week of your time, especially if you have infants because it's not just the car seats. You've got to bring the bath and, and you've got to bring all their stuff and the crib. And, the, well, if we're going to be at mom and dad's for a little bit, we're going to have to bring that swing that helps them sleep because for crying out loud, we couldn't. And so we've got to bring all this stuff. Now imagine 18 people plus the entourage. This was going to be a trip. They didn't just throw some beef jerky in the car and go. They had to plan for all their contingencies. They had to have food and shelter. There was no Motel 6 on the way from Babylon to Jerusalem. There was intense interaction going on. What else should we bring? Well, what happens if it snows? I'm not saying it would have snowed there, but... You see that this was not just a weekend trip. They were on a quest for truth, for something more. Something had been revealed to them, and I believe there are still people today that are on a quest. And as far as we judge them to be from Christ, from a true revelation of God, perhaps more people than you know are on that, tra- uh, that quest for truth, for something more. They may not know his name is Jesus, but perhaps they've seen a sign. Perhaps that sign was your life that points them in the right direction. And those who wish to follow Christ as we do will not be dissuaded by hardship or pain or peril. We, in the words of Jesus, will count the cost. We will make the preparations necessary to follow and seek after Him. For in their intent, 
intentional quest and the intensity of their quest. It was the invitation that convinced them. Think about the invitation of 12 men, the disciples of Jesus, who he came to on the shores of Galilee and some in the streets of Jerusalem and said, come, follow me. And to these pagan astrologers, these Gentiles, this sign in the heavens is an invitation. Come and find me. Come and follow me. They have not yet known who it was they were going to follow or find, but apparently it was convincing enough that they left everything, much like the disciples. It just astounds me how God operates, that he operates and communicates in ways that I don't even think of, that he's reaching to people that I would think they're so unqualified. I mean, they're just a step above devil worshipers. And yet he reveals himself to them. Is it true then what Isaiah chapter 65, when the prophet writes this, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Hmm. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people, speaking of the Jewish people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations of what a Messiah would look like. We talked about that last week, that even the religious people who had this idea of the Messiah from the scriptures that they had studied missed the Messiah because he doesn't fit their imagination of what a Messiah would look like. Even when Jesus is older, performing the miracles, they don't accept him as Messiah because he doesn't fit their concept. But these kings, these wise men, these astrologers, they have no concept of what this king should look like. They just know he's great and they must respond, compelled by the invitation of the stars to seek him out. So here they are. They arrive in Jerusalem on their white Mustang steeds, horses. Let's just call them Mustangs just because we can. They arrive in, in, in great fanfare probably. The guards at the gates of Jerusalem probably see him, see him coming miles off. And here they arrive asking for another king. We're not sure who first they ask, but my guess is that when they come trotting up to Jerusalem's gates, the gatekeepers say, what's your business? Well, we've come to see the, see the one born king of the Jews. Who is the king? Who, where is he? Well, the king of the Jews is Herod. Maybe you should start there. We're not really sure how they get to Herod. We just know that they end up in Herod's court. I don't know that these guys are really that wise because if I'm rolling into King Herod's territory, I don't announce myself saying, we're looking for another king. King Herod? No, 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 no. Another one. Surely they have heard of King Herod's neurosis. He's already killed a wife and two sons who he thought were usurping his power. And here they are. They arrive at the gate saying, we're here to seek another king. So maybe they ask the gatekeeper. Maybe they ask the guy on the street. Maybe they they stop at, you know, the local bakery. They're asking, where is this one born king of the Jews? There was no doubt in their mind that he had already been born, that that he had arrived. They were simply asking Hey, 
you're the Jewish people that this king's born to, maybe you guys know. And so they asked, and they eventually got to Herod. And if you read that account in Matthew chapter 22, that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. I think all of Jerusalem was disturbed because there's a group of guys going, where's this new king? And they thought, oh dear, this is not good. Someone's going to die. They knew there was trouble stirring. In fact, the the interpretation of that, the translation of that word really could mean shaking. There was a shaking. There was a, a nervousness that Herod had because someone has come and dared to threaten my power, my reign. And they come asking questions. Where is the one born king of the Jews? I know this. There are, there are three categories of people who ask questions. One is smart people. The smart people I know in life, they ask a lot of questions. They're always inquisitive about stuff. They're constantly wanting to know what they don't know. Smart people always ask questions. I know there is another category of people that always ask questions. They're called teachers, and they put it on a test. They're always asking questions to find out what you know. And then there's a third category of people who always ask questions. They're called children. They're always asking questions. Why, Daddy? Why? What for? Because I said so. Children always ask questions. They are born with that desire to know, that inquisitiveness, curiosity. And it's to these that Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven. When he says, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must come like a child. You see, the religious people of the Jewish culture at that point had stopped asking questions. They knew it all. Now they just wanted to know when. They had just stopped asking questions. And so when it is revealed to them, when the question is asked, where is the one born king of the Jews? I don't know if they were ready for that. They had just stopped asking questions altogether. You know, our society sometimes tells us to stop asking questions. You evolved, science figured it all out, God is dead, just stop asking questions. But I think there's that longing in every person to know why. Why am I here? What's my purpose? It's, I think, what drove these astrologers to discover, why did we see this sign? What is this purpose? Have, have we as a church, as Christians, have we stopped asking questions? Well, this is what we were told. This is what the story's been, how it's been told to us for years. Well, have you, have you read the scripture to find out for yourself, for a personal revelation of God? Well, that's just what we've always done. It's how we've always done it. Have we stopped asking questions? Have you stopped asking questions of God? They ask where... Not if, but where is the one born king of the Jews? The wise men of the Jewish culture failed at their job. And in comes the pagan astrologer, wise men. And they say, where is your Messiah to be born? (laughs) They don't 
They don't fail at their job because they, they didn't give out good directions. They pulled out Google Maps and they said, uh, if you travel down Highway 1 south towards Ashland, no, towards Bethlehem, they immediately had the answer. He's born in Bethlehem. It wasn't their lack of knowledge. They had all the knowledge. They pointed them in the right direction, but they failed to acknowledge what they were seeking, what these wise men were seeking. Don't you find that interesting? Why didn't they go with them? Why didn't they join them in their quest? I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that Herod was neurotic. I mean, here they are, 400 years of silence. They've been anticipating a Messiah. And the only king they know is the Roman king. And to them, Herod is the representation of all power at that point. King Herod is their king. And when the wise men come and say, where is this king of the Jews? Do you think they feared Herod more? I mean, they've seen what Herod does to people who are not loyal to him. He murders them. So do you think that perhaps their fear of Herod just overwhelmed their sense of obligation to find a Messiah? Perhaps they were thinking, well, we'll send these dudes off, and if they survive and come back, then, then maybe then this Messiah is really the king. And because the Messiah we're looking for, he'll take care of Herod because he's going to come with a sword. He's going to come and conquer the Roman Empire. Do you see why they may not have reacted, why they may not have acted with the wise men? The Messiah, if he was truly their Messiah, would act according to their wishes and get rid of Rome and Rome's control. They were just disillusioned with maybe a silent God at this point. They just thought, it's not coming now. I mean, is that how we as Christians live? Jesus promises return and we think, he'll come back someday when I'm old, Right? Have you thought about the fact that maybe Jesus would come back this Christmas? Now, guys, that's not an excuse to not buy your wife a present. I was, I was expecting Jesus to come back. I'm, I'm sorry. I, my faith got the best of me. It's not going to work. I guess the question is, where is the king of your life? Who is the king of your life? Is he the king that these pagan astrologers were seeking out. See the light that shines in the darkness. These wise men never understood that the very king they were looking for was right under the nose, their noses. John chapter 1, verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't understand it. The darkness didn't understand the light that was shining, but these pagan astrologers understood the light that was shining. They knew where to seek it out. They knew where to go. This morning as we close, the band's coming. I just want to briefly talk about what they discovered. So they follow, well, they don't really follow. They see a, a sign. They interpret the sign as being a, a king is being born to Israel. So they go to Jerusalem. They set their course. They travel for however long it takes. They come to Jerusalem. They ask the question, and it's told to them by the Jewish scholars themselves in Bethlehem. Okay. They take them at, at the, their word. Notice in Scripture that when they depart from Herod's court, 
It says, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So if they're from Persia, they're actually looking the opposite direction there. They had seen the star in the east, traveled west to Jerusalem. But Bethlehem is south of there. Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem. So from modern astronomy, we can guess that they actually didn't follow anything there. They just set their course and went because they knew Jerusalem was the place. That should encourage us when God gives us a sign. You don't always have to follow something. Just obey. Just go. God will give you the answer when you get there. Because when they depart the court, the temple, the, wherever they're at, they leave. They step outside. Perhaps they even get outside of the city walls heading towards Bethlehem. And after the light of the city had faded there in the country sky, where you can only see some stars, right? Get, get outside of the city, right? Get away from the hustle and bustle of life. Sometimes God will reveal, you, reveal himself in a better way. And there in the sky is a sign, another sign, perhaps the same sign, same star, same constellation. But in that moment, it revealed itself again. And this time to the south, you think they just kind of stood back and went, whoa, there it is again. Or if it's a different one, maybe some believe it was a comet that actually rested in the southern sky. And they just went, that sounds about right. That's where we were told to go. And they follow that star. God was confirming to these pagan astrologers what he'd been saying to them all along. He revealed himself to those who did not seek him at first. This was no ordinary king that they discovered. They come to a house. By this time, Jesus is probably about two years old. He's, I know, blowing up your nativity. He's not, he's not in, a, in a stable or an inn. He's in a house. There's no shepherds, probably no sheep or any sort of animal around. So there must have been something spectacular. There's a star in the sky. They follow it to this house. He's not in a castle. He's not in some sort of royal garments. So there must have been something that set him apart. There must have been some sort of experience that they had in that moment that confirmed their suspicions all along. probably isn't because he wasn't crying. I know the song tells us that. But I'm guessing that a two-year-old, if he's crying, isn't that, oh, he's crying like a little baby. It might have been like a two-year-old scream. But something took place in their encounter. There was a revelation of who Jesus was because when it says when they saw him, they bowed and they worshiped him something some revelation some ignition of a spiritual rebirth happened in them because they bowed they bowed they worshiped there was no music no stained glass no pretty lights no well-synced instruments you guys are well-synced instruments no altar call and no wordy preacher just a personal revelation of the savior and they bowed They physically caused their body to go into a position of humbleness. 
Darcy and I had the great privilege several years ago to travel to Israel and go to the Church of the Nativity. It's the traditional site of where Jesus was born, and, and whether or not it is, is irrelevant. But what I found interesting was the entrance to, the, to this little room that they've decorated very ornately in celebration of the spot where Jesus was born. The doorway, about two and a half feet tall. Were they expecting elves? I, I don't know. There's no cool way to enter into that area, that little room where Jesus was purportedly born. The only way to enter that room, humbly. With all your friends around, you got down on your knees and you crawled in. And you looked around and then you crawled back out. Your pride faded at that moment. Those wise men just became wise. They just realized that the king they came to see was the king. He was Jesus Christ, the savior of all mankind. And they gave him the gifts due to a king. Fittingly to him, gold for his royalness. Incense because he was a priest and myrrh because he would die. <laughs> what do you get somebody who has everything? You ever ask yourself that question at Christmas time? What do you get somebody who has everything? Take it a step further. What do you get somebody who's created everything? I think the only thing that Jesus wants from you, whether you consider yourself wise or not, the only thing he wants from you this Christmas is you. He just wants you. So the close of that passage, verse 12 of Matthew chapter 2, in a supernatural way, God gives the wise men a dream and says, don't go back the way you came. The warning to them. Because King Herod was about to exact his retribution for, for this new king. And so they'd go home a different way. Can I give you a warning this morning? Go home a different way. Like, not drive to your house a different way. Go home different. I'm convinced that whatever those pagan astrologers, those Gentiles, whatever they experienced in that moment, in that house, with that toddler, completely transformed them. They were different. They didn't go home the same way. Could that be said of your encounter with Jesus? I'm not talking about a Jesus that you meet at church or in tradition, but that Jesus that you meet in that personal revelation that you seek out. Not that I provide as your pastor or that the worship team provides to you because of their really well-orchestrated music, but that personal revelation that when you depart that moment with God, you're never the same. You can't even go to work the same. That the sign to the unbelievers now is not a sign in the heavens, but a sign in your life. You become the sign for others. 
of where Jesus resides today. And it's not here in this building. It's in your hearts. May that forever be known as the place that Jesus now dwells. Father, bless your people as we leave this place today. May we be different. May we be changed and transformed and live accordingly this Christmas because of who you are and where you reside. Thanks. Thanks for loving us, for changing us. We exalt you this week. May everything we do exalt you this week. Amen. Look forward to seeing you next week.